This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The Trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. I don't think he's going to win this case. I don't think he has really much of a shot. I think even if he testifies, it's quite a Hail Mary. It's very difficult to overcome a case this strong when you sit silent. Welcome back to the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. I'm your host, Kelly O'Grady, from over at Fox Business. So we are three weeks into the financial fraud trial of the century, and the prosecution is near wrapping up. The defense will take the stand next. Right now, court's on a break until later in the week. So what I thought we'd do today is take the opportunity to kind of reset, discuss how the trial's been going, what evidence we've seen, and what might be going on in the minds of the jury. So to recap, the prosecution has really hung its case on three of SBF's inner circle that have turned on him. They've all pled guilty. They faced decades in prison. So one could assume they're highly motivated on the stand to try and earn some leniency. But the good news for the prosecution is that a lot of what they're saying has been corroborated, at least in part, by other members of the company and outside investors. There was one particularly strong witness at the end of last week that we'll get into later today, FTX's general counsel. Suffice to say, hearing a legal insider break things down uh, may have had a strong impact on the jury. Now, the defense comes next, and perhaps SBF himself, as we've heard from a number of experts on the podcast so far, it could be the nail in the coffin, but it may also be the only thing that saves him at this point. So here to break it all down is Sam Menzer. He's a partner at Cahill Gordon and Rindell, not only an expert in white-collar criminal defense, but also very well-versed in the crypto space. Uh, welcome, Sam. We are super excited to talk to you today. Thanks for having me, Kelly. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, we're on a break, Sam. I want to kind of zoom out to 30,000 feet here for a second and level set. SBF, he's facing seven counts of fraud, money laundering, wire fraud, conspiracy. So paint a picture for us. You know, what are the key things that the prosecution has to prove to get these jurors to believe beyond a reasonable doubt that he did this? So I think the essence of the government's case is one, that lies or misrepresentations were told either to customers, lenders, or investors to get them to part with money, misrepresentations about facts that would have mattered to them in making decisions. Two, that those misrepresentations were deliberate, that they were intentional, that SBF intended to deceive them for the purpose of defrauding them and not by mistake, in good faith, or negligently. For the money laundering charge, the government would also have to prove that steps were taken to take proceeds of the fraud and move it in a way that would conceal that it was from the fraud. But the essence of all the charges is fraudulent misstatements, intent to deceive. That's the core of the government's case. Okay. So, and to that point, right, we've heard a lot of uh, from the defense and opening statements and whatnot that what they're really going to try and hang this on is, you know, he got over his skis, he made some mistakes, but there was no intent to your point to uh, commit these crimes. 
So uh, we'll get into some more detail, but what's your assessment so far? I mean, how has the prosecution done? We've got one or two really quick witnesses left on Thursday later this week. But have they proven that uh, in your perspective? Yeah, I think, you know, look, you don't want to judge the case before it's over. Sure. Um, We don't know what's going to happen on the last day of the government's proof. We don't know what's going to happen in the defense case. But look, so far, this is not a close case. It's not even close to a close case. It's <laughs> an overwhelming uh, show of force by the government. You've got very clear evidence that investors, lenders, customers were told that funds they provided to FTX would be safe, that they were there, that they would be ring fenced from monies used by FTX. And in fact, monies were being given out the back door to another arm of the company, Alameda Research, a hedge fund that was owned by SBF. Customers and others were told that Alameda wouldn't have special privileges. In fact, they had all kinds of special privileges, including a virtually limitless, a $65 billion line of credit, borrowing from what? Customer funds. And $8 billion of those funds were borrowed and not repaid, which is why we're here today. Right. No, I, I mean, some of the, the revelations that came out in testimony of the extent of those privileges, those were, were big moments. You mentioned the $65 billion line of credit. A bunch of us were sitting in the media overflow room in the court, and there were just kind of gasps of, oh, wow, you know, that that's just um, that's crazy. And no other customer had that. Uh, I think most it was in some cases like a, a million dollars, which obviously the differential there is quite big. So, you know, I want to follow up on how they've presented their case, because you work uh, on many cases in this space in cryptocurrency. And one of the things that I felt like the the prosecution may have a challenge with is helping the jurors understand this case and sort of wrap their minds around it. Because ultimately, fraud is fraud. But when you're dealing with fiat and spot trading and all of these phrases that keep getting raised in the courtroom, if you haven't been following this case and following a number of other cryptocurrency cases you might be sitting there kind of scratching your head going, okay, wait, what? what is some of this? So how do you feel like the prosecution has done on that arm of making this about fraud versus crypto? I think the, the prosecution has done a good job of using their cooperating witnesses to explain the background concepts. And, and that is traditionally the approach taken by that office, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District. I used to be a prosecutor there, and now I defend many cases that they bring. Um, And it is you're seeing textbook examples of how they bring a case. So in the opening statement, even before the evidence began, um, Thane, who was one of the prosecutors, gave a very Thane Wren gave a very simplified version of the story that the jury would hear. That gives them the context. Then very quickly, they called Gary, one of their cooperating witnesses, who I think gave sort of an overview of the fraud. Caroline Ellison then comes and not only explains some of the concepts, but backs up what Gary's saying. And then you hear from um, Nishad Singh, who also explains different aspects of the fraud and explains some of the basic concepts. And after hearing it over and over again, I think the jury is getting a lesson in it. Now, you have 12 jurors and then you have some alternates. Is every single one of them going to comprehend all of this? Maybe not. But you don't need every one of them to get it. 
if a few of them get it, they'll explain it to the others when they sit down together to deliberate. Mm, that's very helpful context because that's one of the things that I've I've been curious about that uh, I know the defense is also going to try and, you know, make this murky of, well, there were it wasn't regulated enough and, and really try and hang some of their case on that sort of murkiness of the space. And I've sort of been wondering, OK, I wonder if that's going to play a role. But it does sound to your point, right, it, you only need a couple to to understand and help in that deliberation room if someone's confused about one point. So you mentioned the three uh, folks testifying, Wang, Ellison, and then uh, Singh. All three are cooperating witnesses, very motivated to get that 5K letter potentially that would help with sentencing, with leniency. It's been a lot of he said, they said, right? There hasn't been that smoking gun where we see a screenshot of a text message where SBF says, okay, go do this. You know, I'm, I'm telling you to go commit fraud, right? It's been a lot of do you believe Ellison, Wang, and Singh. In your experience uh, on both sides of the coin, how does that work in the past? You know, uh, when you hear the this this testimony does the jur- jury believe it often or can it be kind of murky because you don't have that open and shut screenshot or that financial document that says that he did it? Yeah, I mean, each case is different, um, but the government, particularly that office, they win well over 90 percent of the cases they take to trial. It's a darn good um, record. Yes, for sure. And I do think you do have some smoking guns here. Maybe not a text that says, hey, commit fraud. But Mm -hmm. for example, we heard testimony that Gary was told to code special privileges for Alameda on the same day. And he was told to do that by SBF. And he's told to do that on the same day that uh, I think SBF tweets that there are no special privileges. That's kind of like a smoking gun. And I think that's something that will stick to the jury's ribs. Another example, Ellison described how she had to give doctored balance sheets when some of the lenders were asking for their money back. And she gave seven versions, like seven different fraudulent versions to SBF. He then picks the one that's the most fraudulent. And there's documentation showing that in real time. And you also have um there were back and forth between him and her where he would give like comment bubbles mm-hmm. on the internal records of the fraud. I mean, that's pretty close to a smoking gun. Could could you have something a little more clear? Yes, there are cases, but I'm not sure that those cases go to trial. Mm. So I love that you bring up those examples because listening in the courtroom, those were moments where I was going, oh, Right. He tweeted that out the same day or there were a number of other conversations that he was allegedly supposed to have had with his three inner circles saying that uh, them presenting evidence to him of like, hey, you know, we're we're taking customer money. I'm really concerned about this. We shouldn't be doing it. And then on the same day, he tweets out uh, all customer money is is safe. You know, we don't use any of that stuff. So I, I agree with you. There were moments, I think, as a juror where I would say. I can connect the dots, if you will, that something happened here. However, um, I was surprised because there isn't that screenshot, if you will, the open and shut case, that the defense didn't go in uh, on the cross-examination a little bit further because, again, these are just recountings, retellings of conversations that Ellison had uh, with SBF, that Wang had with SBF, and that there might have been an opportunity 
to imply or or go in a little bit further that, well, are you remembering these correctly? Did he actually say this to you? We don't have any evidence. Sure, there are those comment bubbles, but there isn't that direct acknowledgement uh, that they were using customer funds. What did you think about that, that cross-examination piece? Well, I, I agree with you that I don't think the defense has been particularly effective on cross, that there was a lot of food left on the table. Mm, that's uh, a good way to put it. So, for example, you know, to your point, I, I remember there was testimony Ellison gave that she describes how Sam told her that he had this utilitarian philosophy. Right. It's okay to lie if it's for the greater good. Um, there's no recording of that. There's no email that says that. There's no text message. And those are questions that could have been asked, right? She actually does introduce recordings, or, or they introduced a recording of a meeting she had. And so you can compare and contrast that on cross, right? You did, you had a live journal, right, ma'am? And you did not write anything about this in your journal, did you? You didn't have a single email in the many years that you dated Sam about this. You didn't tell a single friend about this. You don't have a recording of it. You had an iPhone on you all the time. You didn't record it on your iPhone. All we have is your word, right? And, th- and there were many things that could have been done, uh, and it wasn't. Why? Can't tell you why. I don't know. Well, it sounds like SBF should have hired you as counsel. <laughs> that that would have been, a, I think, at least from where I was sitting, a, a well worth thread to go after um, and to try and discredit these witnesses, especially because they are looking for less time behind bars out of all of this. The the one witness uh, that happened, I want to say on on Thursday of last week, was when when trial met. It was a lawyer. It was FTX's uh, general counsel. I actually felt like this was a really strong way to sort of wrap up the week uh, when you hear a legal insider testifying about how he didn't know customer funds were being used, that uh, he was shocked that the very next day, once he had a number of conversations when everything was falling apart, he left. That's another piece that I think a lot of us are, are scratching our head on, that you've got all these people testifying now but you knew it was going on for years, supposedly. So why didn't you leave? Um, but this person did. And there was a moment where uh, they were talking about the terms of service. It was flashed up for the jury where you, when you sign up, I mean, of course, none of us actually ever read the terms of service. We just check the box on whether it's you know Facebook or Instagram or FTX in this case. But it said that your funds were safe, that they weren't lent out, that they that you owned them in this wallet. And the uh, witness mentioned that he was part of writing those terms of service. Was that a, a really important moment for the jury? Because to me, that kind of proved out at least that there there was the fraud where you didn't have to to agree that, OK, Ellison's telling the truth or, or Singh's telling the truth. You have a witness who is not motivated by any of that presenting evidence that, yes, there was something wrong going on here. Yeah, I think so. I think you were talking about the testimony of Cass Sun, who was the mm-hmm. general counsel, the mm-hmm. number two lawyer. Um, and this was I think we, we've already heard testimony from investors, i.e. victims who said, look, my understanding was my funds were not going to be used for loans for crazy investments. I'm depositing it almost like a bank and I get to use it on my trades and nothing else. This heads off the defense that we heard in the defense opening. They want to argue that SBF thought it was okay for Alameda to borrow and use the funds as long as collateral was given 
to FTX to back up the loans. And he and I think their argument is going to be that there were these FTT tokens that Alameda gave to FTX that they was were collateral for the monies that were borrowed. And so SBF had a reasonable belief that this wasn't a fraud. Well, you know, Cass Sun puts a dagger in the heart of that defense, right? He tells you, I wrote the terms of service. This is what they say. They couldn't be clearer. That is not something that any customer was led to believe. Um, he also said, you know, number one, that he was told by the company, by SBF, by others at FTX to tell regulators that FTX and Alameda were separate uh, and that Alameda didn't have special privileges in terms of this self-liquidation concept that some customers were subject to, but Alameda was not. In other words, what we heard is SBF lied to his own lawyer. Okay, that's pretty damning testimony. That is very powerful evidence of criminal intent. Why would you lie to your own lawyer unless you're committing a fraud and you think your lawyer is going to tell you you can't do this? So you have to lie to them to do it. Um, Very powerful. Now, Cass, he's not a cooperator in the sense that he didn't plead guilty, but he did have a non-prosecution agreement. True. That's a very good point. In other words, he thought something he did was wrong, potentially not kosher, as my mother would say. Um, And so the government promised not to prosecute him if he testified, cooperated, told the truth. But he hasn't been charged. He won't, won't be convicted. He won't be sentenced. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. That's a very good point to underline, that there there is some uh, element there. And I believe they mentioned if he were to lie on the stand, then, you know, he, he could be charged uh, with perjury and a number of other pieces. But yeah, that that moment, the way the way that you teased that out, I liked it. That why would you lie to your own lawyer? There's something shady there potentially, and I, I was really struck by a conversation that the two had towards the end, where uh, Sun was recounting that SBF was asking him, "Is there any way theoretically that we could justify using customer funds?" And he didn't he didn't tell him why he was he was asking all of those reasons. And of course, then Sun went directly to Nishad Singh, and they had a conversation, and he learned everything that was going on. And so I, I feel like for at least for me, potentially for the juror, that was a, a very powerful moment. So I want to get your take, though, on what comes next, because the defense uh, will likely start Thursday afternoon after the prosecution wraps. Um, we've heard they may present a, a defense, they may or a case, they may not. And of course, everyone's wondering if they will call Sam Bankman-Fried to the stand uh, to tell his own side of it. Do you think he needs to testify at this point? Well, I think if he need in the sense that if he doesn't, I think conviction is all but assured. Okay. So I don't think he's going to win this case. I don't think he has really much of a shot. I think even if he testifies, it's quite a Hail Mary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think that this is, it's very difficult to overcome a case this strong when you sit silent. And the the jury will be instructed that he has a right not to testify under the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution. And 
he has no burden of proof. The government has the burden and they're not supposed to take anything against him or, or draw any adverse inference from that. But let's face reality. You're sitting in a court. The government just spent weeks accusing you of fraud. Your closest co-workers, your former girlfriend just testified that you committed a fraud and you sit there and say nothing. The jury will be all but there to convict, right? To overcome that, to give them any shadow of a doubt, he has to get up there. I think that he will, not because it's a good idea. I think it's a terrible idea because I think he's going down either way. And if he is going to go down, getting up there and lying on the stand or being perceived to be to be lying will only add decades to his sentence when it comes time for sentencing uh, with Judge Kaplan, who I know well. I've tried a case in front of him. I've appeared in front of him many times. So I do think he will because that's his personality, Sam Bankman Freed, right? He talked to the press, probably against the advice of his counsel, many times. Um, in the lead up to the trial, he leaked information to the media against the advice of his counsel that got him remanded. Now that he's detained, he has reapplied many times to get out on bail. I am sure that angers Judge Kaplan, hurts him, will hurt him down the road. Nonetheless, did it. I think you've got a guy who has a huge ego, is hard to control. We've heard he has these, uh, you know, ADHD that could contribute to, to his, you know, having issues with his judgment. I just think it's likely he'll, t he'll take the stand. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. It's certainly the number of times that he spoke to the media right when all of this was going down. He even continued speaking to the media after he had been indicted. He had folks coming to uh, his his parents' home in the Bay Area before his bail was revoked. But to your point, Judge Kaplan seems to have reached his limit uh, in terms of, of how frustrated he's been with SBF uh, throughout this case and, and the lead up to it and everything. And that if he were to take the stand and uh, he were to potentially perjure himself, that that would impact the judge's sentencing maybe in a negative way. I, I want to ask you, though, you know, you, you say, OK, he's probably going to get convicted if he doesn't testify, he's probably going to get convicted if he does testify. Um, but what I could see happening is you bring in a human element. You hear his narrative. Um, in theory, he he may be compelling, given that he was able to convince all of these investors and celebrities and whatnot that he uh, was the real deal and that they should invest millions and billions of dollars with him. Do you think or, or what's your experience in white crawler crime cases like this? Is that testimony compelling in the same way as a Kyle Rittenhouse, for example, where you you have a very different crime? But that that moment was really it seemed like what convinced the jury. For sure. When I, I think that any time a defendant testifies, the entire dynamic of the trial changes mm. and it, it, it goes from what is the government say you did drawing inferences from little this piece of evidence or that to do I believe this guy? Do I believe him? Now, the danger there for the defendant is if they get caught in a lie, even a lie that doesn't matter for what the charges are, mm. the jury may just condemn them on the whole thing. But the power of it is, yes, if they connect, if they tell a story that resonates, or if the jury thinks, you know, maybe he did it, but like this isn't a case where the guy should go to jail you have the opportunity to get the jury to nullify. Um, and in cases I have tried where where the defendant testified, it, 
I never had a, a defendant get off because they testified, but it did at times take the jury a lot longer to decide mm-hmm. to convict. You know, it was harder for them to, to parse through, to think it through and ultimately get to a conviction. Mm. I know that's an interesting note. And uh, it gives me a window into my future. If he does testify, how many days I'll be standing outside the courtroom in November weather. Um, I also just wanted to ask you briefly about uh, the ramifications of his testimony for other cases that are out there. So let's say he were to testify and he were to potentially get off, right? Uh, what he's hoping for, he's scot-free on this criminal trial. There's another one coming up in March. But there's also an SEC case, a CFTC case, uh, lawsuits, class action lawsuits, which are all civil cases. How could his testimony impact those if he were to say, well, you know, I should have had more um, risk uh, regulations in place. I should have had a board. I screwed up. To me, if I'm the SEC, I'm hoping for that testimony to come out because I can go and nail them if I'm the prosecutor in that case. No, that's absolutely right. Um If the government wins the criminal case, it's practically an automatic victory Mm. for the SEC, the CFTC, and, you know, the civil plaintiffs will more or less uh, have an easy path to victory based on the criminal conviction. Mm -hmm. Although Uh the issue for civil plaintiffs lawyers, what they're after is money, and there is not much money to get. So, you know, to get any money here, you're litigating in the bankruptcy, which is a whole other ball of wax. Um, but you're right that even if he wins this case, his legal troubles are not over. But I, I would take, you know, I don't know what the Vegas odds are here or what, what, what kind of odds you're going to give me. But I, if I was betting, I would definitely bet he gets convicted. I like that. I, I, I should go check if Vegas has any odds on this. That would be an interesting one. Um, you know, final final question for you. I, I think you brought so many really strong insights uh, and very, very good examples from the trial, which I appreciate. Clearly, you've been following this very closely, just as I have. Let's say you're defense counsel. What are you telling Sam right now? Does he take the stand? Should he? I would tell him, do not. Okay. I would say to him, we're going down. What we should do with the rest of this case is position you to give the judge context and sympathy that will help us at sentencing. You know, I I think I would even be talking to him about a plea. Mm. mid-trial, a mid-trial plea, um, so that he could still get credit for what's called acceptance of responsibility, which can get you a reduction uh, of your sentencing guidelines at sentencing. I, I would implore him to to consider that. I never tell a client what to do. That's not my approach. Sure. I feel like my job is to give them the options, give them the information they need. They decide the priorities, and then we go aggressively for whatever they choose. But I would tell him, if he's looking to minimize the number of decades he spends in prison, his best path at this point is to accept responsibility and call it quits. Definitely not to testify. Mm. And just a quick follow up on that. Uh, he's facing 110 years in prison based on these charges. What in your experience might I mean, I, I realize every trial is different, but what might Judge Kaplan be looking at giving him and is is there anything where he might be, you know, given, let's say, 50 years but serves 30? Because let's remember, you know, he is he's a 31-year-old. There's still time for him to potentially live some of his life after he gets out. What what kind of sentence do you think we might be looking at if he were to 
not take the stand and, and anger Judge Kaplan? I think that it, we're looking at north of 20 years. Okay. Um, because he has gone to trial, taken it this far, I, I think that we're looking at at least two decades. There's several factors that go into sentencing. One of the factors is what's called the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines, and they require the judge to consider in a fraud case, how big was the fraud, how much money was lost. And it also requires the judge to consider other factors. You know, does this person need to be deterred? Does, the, does a message need to be sent to the market? Um, is this person a danger to the community? Can they be rehabilitated in jail? All these things. Um, but at the end of the day, this is such a massive fraud. So many people were injured. The number, the, the dollar loss is enormous. Um, that a message will need to be sent. It's got to be significant. But where you land between, let's say, 20 and the absolute maximum, which is effectively a life sentence, that's a hard call. Unlike Madoff, and I was in the courtroom when Madoff was sentenced, okay, I, I remember hearing him speak and hearing the victims in that case speak. This is different than Madoff. Madoff perpetrated his fraud for decades. He was an old man, sophisticated, knew what he was doing was wrong. SBF is a kid. Um, he's, I know he's in his 30s, but he's still young. Sure. As my mother will tell you, guys don't get it till they're 35 anyway. <laughs> um, so, you know, you've got the fact that he could be rehabilitated. The fact that, you know, it's not like this was a decade-long pattern of misconduct. The, these are mitigating circumstances. And I'm not sure that it, he needs to be in prison for life. Mm. No, that that you lay it out very well. Those are... Certainly, I think a message does need to be sent. And the fact that this is such the, the first big case for this industry, so so highly publicized, I wonder if that will also play a, a factor into all of this as, as a warning to everyone else in the market, um, because we certainly are seeing a number of other cases pop up here and there. Sam, I appreciate your time. Uh, really, really good insights. And I guess we will see whether SVF takes the stand uh, in... About a week and a half or so. Uh, certainly, we'll be we'll be curious to hear uh, if he does his narrative, and um, you know, like you said, whether that angers Judge Kaplan or not. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us today. For sure. Thanks for having me, Kelly. All right, folks, that does it for us today. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe and tune into future episodes. We are dropping every Monday and Wednesday. Court doesn't resume until the end of the week. So next episode, we will be talking to a forensic accountant uh, who's going to tell us how everyone traced the fraud and uh, whether there was a smoking gun enough for the jury to convict Sam Bankman-Fried. Thanks for now. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.